Welcome to Through the Caves, the podcast at IU Bloomington Media School, where we talk to experts about the important issues that affect all of us in our community. My name is Elaine Monaghan. I'm a professor of practice in journalism at the Media School, and I'm here with... I'm Jim Shanahan, and I'm the Dean of the Media School. And I'm Violet Barron, the producer. Welcome, Jim and Violet, and we're extremely excited today to welcome Dr. Aaron Carroll to our show. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It's, you must be almost talked out on the subject of coronavirus. I feel like I'm almost <laughs> talked out on any subject at this point, but yes. <laughs> but we are really, really pleased that we can ask you our questions, even though you have spent many, many months now asking everyone's questions about whether COVID-19, whether testing, whether in-class education, etc. But we have just more questions that we just are dying to ask you. So um, as almost everyone by now must know, Dr. Carroll is from IU's School of Medicine, where he's a health services investigator um, and the Associate Dean for Research Mentoring with an interest in improving pediatric outcomes. And actually, since I am introducing you, I get to ask you my first question. I am the mother of two teenagers. And one of the big questions I have is, when should we expect they might get vaccinated and why does it matter that children should be vaccinated? So when you say teenager, though, how exactly how old are they? Because that will change my answer. Good question. They are 14 and very nearly 17. So ironically enough, I think, uh, you know, it's important to remember Moderna has already been, I believe, approved for 16 and above. So I think that there's a solid shot that when we hit you know, even before we finish further trials, they could theoretically, when they just start pushing this down and say, we're opening it up to all adults, a 17-year-old is likely going to be included. A 14-year-old, however, would likely require an expanded authorization. Now, Moderna, I know, and I believe Pfizer as well, are running trials right now. I'm sure J&J is too, but they're running trials right now for adolescents. So I'd expect, hopefully, to see some data on that by the summer. Um, But again, given... The fact that we're working our way down in age to get from highest risk to lowest risk and we're waiting for these vaccines to be approved. I think it's not unreasonable to hope that in the summer uh, that that they might be able to certainly by the fall. But I think at this point they're trying to push that it'll be open to all adults by the end of May. And then, you know, we just keep pushing into the summer. So it's possible now why everyone should get vaccinated. We don't want a pool of coronavirus. We don't want this to become endemic the way that other coronaviruses are. It's our goal to get as many people vaccinated as possible so that we can, if not eradicate this, that we can push it down low enough that that it's not living in the in the population all the time. So, Dr. Carroll, thanks for coming on. And it's great to have you. And I echo Elaine's sympathy that you must be talked out on the subject But now you have a chance to talk about it at a time when there's a lot more optimism than there had been. And um, so I do have a lot of questions about numbers that we see. But before that, and especially here as the dean of the media school, I'm so, you know, really thrilled and maybe even giddy would be a word to describe the idea that we could be back here, quote unquote, in person in fall, which is what seems like will happen. So what changed and, and what do you want to tell us about what that would look like in the fall here at IU? Well, I think there's two things which are going on which 
make it very likely that we will be able to do that. The first is that we're getting better at IU at managing this. Uh, you know, this semester, especially since the beginning of January, we've managed with all that we're doing, including significant amounts of testing to keep the number of cases and the positivity rate very low. Uh, and given that, there's every reason to believe that if we can do this when there's a lot of cases out in the community, that if there's fewer cases in the community, we could keep things incredibly safe and probably relax our restrictions even further. Given that more and more people are going to be vaccinated, unfortunately, more and more people have had this and are therefore immune, we're pushing and pushing and pushing towards herd immunity. And I think there's a solid chance that with vaccination and, again, existing immunity, we get close during the summer but we get to a place in the fall where we're close enough that with the measures that we take, even if they're a little bit less, I'd expect that we can keep things very safe, which makes it much more likely that we can engage in more activities that approach a more normal expectation. I want to say real quick that I got my first vaccination yesterday. And, uh, yay. <laughs> and, um, you know, it can be hard sometimes to navigate the, um, the websites that are there. In my case, it turned out to be easy and I could drive to a neighboring county. And it seems like it's getting more opened up here very quickly. Is Indiana, do you think, are, you know, how are we doing as a state? And the impression I get is things are really opening up. Things are doing pretty well in the state. First of all, our the way that we're vaccinating is, is pretty good. I mean, we are amongst, I'd say the top, I don't know how many states, but we're towards the top in terms of the percent of vaccine that we've been given that we've put into arms. So we've gotten very efficient at pushing it out. Um, so that's good. But on top of that, uh, we are one of the states that has achieved a much lower number of cases and, and managed to hold that. Uh, there aren't that many states that are doing that at the moment. And if you go to the New York Times right now, they break down all the states into high and higher, low but increasing. We're in the small group that are low rates and staying low. Now, whether we can continue that is a good question. Um, and also, I'd like us to be lower than where we are right now, which is something like 800 cases a day. But compared to where we were and looking at our trajectory moving forward and given that there's more and more immunity, more and more vaccination, it's getting warmer, we'll spend more time outside, things are pointing in the right direction. And so I think that there's reason for optimism if we continue to vaccinate and just hold the line for a bit longer. So you also said a lot of really encouraging and exciting things. And just like Jim, I can't wait to get by in the classroom. And I can't get, wait to get out there and just feel kind of normal again. So I guess I, I just wanted to ask that question. So, um, you know, we all listen to Dr. Fauci as well as to you. And the message I'm hearing is that, you know, we should probably anticipate still having to wear masks, maybe for a while. We're still going to have to do social distancing. You know, maybe it's going to take a while for us to get to the point where there really is that herd immunity that you're talking about, although it does feel quite safe here in Bloomington, um, generally speaking. What, what's it going to be like? Are we going to be able to go out and say hi to our friends and see each other's faces at last? So it's important to understand that it's very hard. The United States is a big country and things will not be the same everywhere. And even in Indiana, it's a big state. Things will not be the same everywhere. But at the moment, things are really good in Bloomington. Um, and there's every reason to believe that we can continue that if we keep doing what we're doing. So I can't promise that like this is the way it would look everywhere. But if we can help 
really suppress this and we can all be safe in Bloomington, there's, you know, every expectation that at least outside we could be gathering in larger and larger and larger groups. Uh, even inside, there's every expectation that if we were willing to mask and we have a lot of people immunized, if not everybody immunized, um, that we'd be incredibly safe. We could even start making an argument at that point that we don't even need masks. Uh, but I don't think it's unreasonable, especially in times when uh, there's more cases and more disease that we might need to remask up or be a bit more careful. But it might be a transient thing. It might be the kind of thing that, you know, we'll start existing as we should have existed, you know, back in the summer where we can classify areas as green, yellow, red, and say, hey, if you're green right now, we can do a lot of stuff, but we're going to keep doing background monitoring. And if we move into yellow, we mask up and we start distancing. And in red, we think about really suppressing. But, you know, if we're in green, then we should be able to act like we're in green. And if some parts of the state are yellow, they should act like that. And if New York is red, that that doesn't bother us that much as long as we're doing, you know, what we should be doing. But I think we'll get to a point we still may have background mitigation testing because we're going to need to know what's going on. We still may have masking here and there. We still may, to, may need to be careful about some things like eating and, you know, especially in areas. But but a lot of that will be dependent on, on what's going on on the ground. And we'll make decisions as, as we see what the data look like. Uh, Dr. Carroll, your comment about uh, green, yellow, red kind of leads to where I was going to ask, which is about different numbers that we see. Uh, if you want to look at various dashboards, whether it's from the state of Indiana or, you know, national Johns Hopkins, and our own dashboard. And it can be very uh, confusing because there's no, it seems that there's no set standard for how this is reported. So I wondered if you could just tell us, you know, if looking at our own dashboard, and as you say, we have very low positivity rates now, point one tenth of 1% for positivity, but there's other numbers. So we have voluntary testing, which is 0.5 of a percent. And then the same dashboard says that Indiana has a 10.1% positivity rate. And a, a quick glance of this, you know, should I conclude that we're 100 times better off than the state of Indiana, for instance, from that? Or how should I interpret those numbers that are there? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, what everyone cares about is what we would call point prevalence. How, how much disease is actually out there? Like, what's a really good measure of how many people are infected, asymptomatically, symptomatically combined right this second. The problem is that almost nowhere in the country do you have that data, but we do. We have that data because we do massive random samples of all of our constituents. On top of that, I literally test 100% of some populations, so I know every single case that's out there. So we can actually calculate prevalence, which we post every week. They can't do that anywhere else. They're not, they're not doing that. They're not random sampling symptomatic and asymptomatic people in any other city. Indiana, the state, has done it three times, but we're the only state that's done it. So I know that all these other dashboards exist, and we have to use a metric that they can measure to do comparisons. But those aren't the measures we really should care about. In an ideal world, we'd all have prevalence. So if you're asking me, what would I want to look at to understand what's going on on, on on our campuses? Prevalence. But since everyone else doesn't have that, we gotta we got to use metrics we can compare. The ones that we all have are number of cases and sometimes positivity rates of the tests we're running. 
Number of cases, however, clearly depends on how much you're testing. If I do no tests, I will find no cases. That doesn't mean I have no disease. Uh, and so more, the more testing you do, the more cases you find. We find more cases on IU's campus than a lot of colleges do, even though we're doing much better because I test, as I said before, everyone. If I do 40,000 tests and I find 100 cases, that's way better than a school that does 1,000 tests and finds 90 cases. I, I mean, just intuitively, you just like that's not. So the next thing you can do is calculate positivity rate of cases that we of, of tests that we do how many are positive that's not prevalence because most states are really testing symptomatic people and we expect that a higher percent of them will be positive so indiana the vast majority of tests that are being done are on are on people that are worried they're sick and so if we see a positivity rate in indiana of right now of 10 percent, or i think it's closer to five percent right now that's still not the same as the positivity rate that we're doing in mitigation testing because they're testing mostly sick people and we're testing, testing mostly well people. So even there, you can't do an apples to apples comparison. And so I, I don't say that we're better than, than Indiana because our testing rates are lower, but I've been testing you know, week to week to week since the beginning of the fall semester. And I can tell you that our, the prevalence last week was the lowest it's ever been. Um, and that's that's comparing apples to apples to apples. And it's the metric we care about. So the so, yeah. So just a couple of clarifications, the Indiana rate of 10.1, that's that's as of February 23rd. So that's now a couple of weeks old, obviously. Um, our positivity rate for symptomatic at that time was five percent. So is that a valid comparison? Still not necessarily because again it's it's a different that's theirs is not entirely symptomatic and it's it's still you know even when you're looking at the symptomatic rate there's there's a rule of thumb that some people have used that we're picking up one out of every ten or eleven cases um, in in generally across the country I can tell you that that's not the case in in IU because again like our symptomatic rate is still a couple percentage points and our asymptomatic rate is like a tenth of a percent. So it's not a 10 to one ratio. It's a, but it's just, it's different. Like it's just not the same. And it's also because most of our tests are in younger people who don't necessarily show symptoms. So it's, you know, the symptomatic rate amongst our constituents could theoretically be much higher than the rest of Indiana, because when, when our population gets sick, they almost definitely, it's, it, it Unfortunately, it's still not apples to apples. It's tough. Well, one last question I'll throw it back to Elaine has to do with, and remembering back to when we were in March and April, and there was, of course, a lot of worrying about should we open and so forth, and all, and that was a very anxious time. Uh, and then uh, later studies coming out showing, uh, not necessarily at, at IU specifically, but in uh, counties around the country with big universities in them that either went uh, in person or not, noticeable increases in incidents, I guess you would call it. Uh, so, uh, and looking sort of at data from Monroe County, it seems like there were increases in incidents. So what, but are we again comparing, uh, do we, do we know anything about that relationship? It's hard because a lot of those analyses were looking at cases again. And, and if you're just looking at cases, I'm trying to find every case. Like that's my goal. 
I want to find every single case so that I can get them into isolation, find their close contacts, get them into quarantine, and constantly be pulling people out of the population. That's not the goal of Monroe County. Monroe County is just testing symptomatic people. And so my goals will increase the number of cases that we find. And I'd still argue that's a great thing. But some of these metrics and the studies that look at this globally would say like, oh, you have more cases. You're doing terribly. And I'm like, you're, we're just measuring different things. And I, I understand that you're using the tools that are available, but we have better data, which we put, which is why we have so much data on our dashboard. We can tell our story better. Uh, and if you try to compare what we find with what we're doing to what they find doing something completely different, it's hard to compare those things. You used a phrase that I absolutely, of course, love as a journalist and a writer. You said we can tell our story better. So at the risk of being a little self-referential here, I'm going to ask you a question I have been dying to ask you for months. So I, back in March, my doctor diagnosed me over the phone with COVID. I couldn't get tested like lots of other people I personally knew and we probably all knew back in the spring. And so I'm in this weird situation now where I don't know if I had it. Um, have we, do we have any data that you can extrapolate backwards to tell us what the prevalence was prior to our amazing testing regimen? So we do, but it's not great. The pro so like even in, uh, when, we did, when Indiana did its seroprevalence studies in April and June and the fall, um, they tested people at the same time, both with a nasopharyngeal swab looking for active disease and also with an antibody test looking for past disease. The problem is no one can really agree what the best antibody test is, and the vast majority of them that are commercially available stink. Uh, so if you have a laboratory study where they're painstakingly doing it in the lab, maybe, but those are rare. Most of the most of the tests that exist out there in the real world are not good. So we don't have a good way. But I, part of me would say, like, it doesn't matter because you should still be safe now and then you should go get vaccinated at which when you can, which at which point all of this becomes moot anyway. So it's one of those questions that's intellectually interesting right now, but hopefully soon won't matter. I'm counting down. I have eight days until my Johnson and Johnson well, vaccine. Then, yeah. And then two weeks later, you'll be vaccinated and all of this that we're discussing about whether you had it before or not will be irrelevant. Elaine, I've diagnosed myself with many diseases in the past. So <laughs> don't know. This was my doctor. I just point out it wasn't me. Yeah. Well, I came back. I was in uh, Europe. We were. I was part of a business and medicine uh Kelly School of Business uh, trip last February into March. We went to Switzerland and the Netherlands to look at their healthcare systems. And in both times while we were touring hospitals, they had their first case of COVID in the hospital. And we came home from that trip and I said to my wife, like, next time you go to the market, buy extra chicken, put it in the freezer. I'm not feeling good about this. And then I had a lingering cough for like two weeks. And she was, of course, convinced I have COVID. I'm positive I didn't have COVID. Um, but it doesn't matter because I'm vaccinated now. So it's like it's one of those like the, the discussion doesn't even matter anymore. Can I, uh, you know, thank you so much for this time. And in the time we have left, can you um, answer maybe a couple of practical questions that people would have? Number one, will IU uh, as a university be involved in vaccinating people? 
Yes. So uh, one, there are pods that are opening on a number of campuses, um, but Bloomington is planning to is hoping to open a pod by the end of March that would not only be responsible for vaccinating constituents, but anyone in the Bloomington Monroe County area could sign up and get vaccinated uh, at at IU's uh, like site. Um, but it's you know of course the supply and the rules come completely from the state, but we're setting up using our infrastructure on Bloomington's campus a site. I think it's end of March is where we're. I mean it depends on when the state gives us vaccine, but that's what we hear is going to happen. Will uh, this be required? Do you think of students, staff, faculty? It's it's an ongoing debate, uh, and so it's not clear how schools are going to fall into this, and it's not clear how it'll be between students and faculty and staff. Um, of course, at the moment, it's a moot point because demand far outstrips supply, and as long as that is true, there's no reason to mandate anything. Uh, will you mandate when someday people don't want to get it anymore and we have more than enough to give. So that's a future discussion to have. Now in an ideal world, so many, if enough people go out and vaccinate, we suppress this into the ground. You never even have to have that discussion, but if not enough people do, and this continues to linger, then we'll have to come to a decision. There are, I'm not sure about IU's policy, but I know at other university, other universities I've worked at, there have been required immunizations and so forth. So it wouldn't be that crazy, right? It's not um, for students, but it actually is more difficult when it gets to employees and staff. Um, and I would also say that, you know, I think at this moment, as far as I know, um, Penn State is the only Big Ten school that's made a decision. Um, and I think they've they've announced they're going to mandate it. I think everybody else is still holding their breath, waiting to see what happens, and then it'll make a determination. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. Um, Dr. Carroll, you might be quite happy about that since you... I wonder if you've kept count of how many questions you've been asked in the last year. Um, no. <laughs> no, to be, no, to be honest with you, it's like, it's, there's a... It's it's good. I mean, I can't say enough. It's like I do feel like that this, you know, being open and honest, answering questions, continually being available. I think that that's one of the things that has allowed us to weather this reasonably well in that, you know, this takes also a sense of shared sacrifice and everyone being in this together and feeling like they're heard and that they that that this is part of it. And too often, I think we're not good enough about speaking to the public and talking to various groups about why we're doing what we're doing. And we made a conscious decision back last summer that this had to be a necessary part of our campaign and our, our management of the pandemic at IU. One thing I can say as a dean and remembering back last summer is those of us who are deans and had really no idea you know, what we should do about these kinds of things. It was helpful to have this approach, you know, and gradually sink our or step our feet into the pool and and then eventually swim the whole way across. And it feels like we could eventually be, be the whole way across. There would be I, one thing, Elaine, and I wanted to ask you, we forgot real quick. Uh, are we going to have to see the need for like booster shots for this kind of thing? We don't know. Um, if we look at evidence we have about how long immunity lasts with other coronaviruses, um, looking at SARS and MERS, it looks like about two to three years. Now, we don't know whether the, the immunity we get from the vaccines will be better, and it could be, or worse, or whether new variants could require boostering. But I think it's very possible that this is something where periodically we may need to get another shot. The good news is that it's hardest to make the first shot. 
after that it's it it gets easier and so like with like for instance with flu we created like a new vaccine every single year and we pump it out and we get it out there we 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 could get really good at this and we're already getting really good at this i mean look how far we've come since december when literally none of this existed um you could see that we could get to a point where you know we could regularly make enough so i'm I think it's possible we may need boostering, but it's not keeping me up at night. We'll do that much better than we than than we did before. Sorry to do another one, but this reminded me of a weird question I had, which was in the Spanish flu pandemic. I assume they had no vaccine for it. And then but that was just another variant of the flu. So they didn't have to then make a vaccine for that, you know, 40 years down the road or something. Right. Correct. And it's it's one of those where it came and it went. And it's also look, it's not in a it's also important to remember, it's not in a virus's best interest to kill you. Like a virus's goal is not to kill you. A virus's goal is to replicate. And the viruses that live the longest in the world are the ones that 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 we just live with. Like the they're endemic coronaviruses, four or five of them that just exist in humans all the time. That's what causes most colds because we don't care about colds. The virus gets to replicate. It gets to go to the next person. It's thrilled. We don't die. It's fine. We all live together. Um, so ones that like massively kill tend to burn out. The problem with this one was that it was dangerous and we had no immunity at all. Um, but will eventually have immunity and that will help us to to live with it. Well, on that very upbeat final note, Dr. Carroll, you have been with us here at Through the Gates. We're absolutely delighted that you're here. I just want to say thank you so much for this open communication. I think it's made us all feel a lot better about a horrible situation. And thank you very much for being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.